I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. I'm Jenny Baker. Prepare to rummage through the lost and found in the Great Concavity. Awesome fan. That's great. Awesome, Jenny. Thank you so much for your introduction and thanks for coming on The Great Concavity. This is episode nine. Can you believe that, Matt? Wow. Uh, we're almost at 10. That's That's gone by pretty fast. Episode nine. Uh, so we're joined this week by Jenny Baker. Jenny Baker is the editor-in-chief of the Found Poetry Review magazine and the mastermind behind the Erasing Infinite Project. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Welcome. So, Jenny, tell us a bit about uh, what you do with David Foster Wallace with his work and maybe some stuff about the poetry review that you're involved with. And then we'll just get a sense of sort of your background and then how you sort of came to Infinite Jest and to Wallace. Sure. So at a high level, um, I manage um, the Erasing Infinite project, which is online at erasinginfinite.com. And what I do is I take uh, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, uh, scan it in page by page uh, on my scanner, and then you know work page by page erasing words from those pages um, until I arrive at a poem. So this is commonly called erasure poetry, uh, exactly for the, the practice that it, it deploys. Mm-hmm. And how long ago did you start that? When did you start that project? Um, so I started the project back um, in 2013, sort of late in the fall. Uh, originally, I had you know this this grand vision that I would um, like work on one poem every day, so that you know I would be done with this thing in like three years. Uh, I, th- <laughs> I think I managed the the poem a day rate for you know a couple months, and then I realized, uh, you know, I think when you're not sustainable, definitely not sustainable, mm-hmm. not with a day job, and then you know somewhat of a life. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I you know I, I probably turn out about uh, you know three or four poems a week, uh, you know, on a good week. Uh, so you know, I, that's good. Th- doing the math is really scary. I, I think I'm probably going to be doing this for ten more years. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> But we'll see. And then the Pale King next. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if I'm feeling ambitious. Yeah. (laughs) I saw today you posted that you're 25% of the way done, though. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's really good timing. Uh, I try to celebrate the milestones where they come because they're very few Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a book of this scope. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a Sisyphusian enterprise to to just roll the ball up the hill forever yeah exactly what do you plan to do with it when it when it is complete is it just something that's going to live online or what do you envision like the whole long-term life of the project looking like so i have several ideas and and you know i need other people to kind of come into play to make these a reality but you know i would love obviously to publish this as a big collection um, oh yeah. You know, one of as a thousand page exactly. Book. <laughs> <laughs> so not every publisher is going to want to take that on. Um, you know, mm. I, I could also see, you know, maybe trying to convince a publisher to publish it in fourths or publish it in you know halves or something like that to make it a little bit more manageable. Um, right. You know, something else that I'd really love to do is uh, kind of turn these digital poems into prints. Um, Mm. and, you know, Mm. kind of work with museums or libraries, you know, maybe even kind of like the Ransom Center and, and, and try to do kind of a display or exhibit, you know, of some of the prints. Yeah, that'd be very cool. 
Um, so the poems that you end up with after you've erased a page of Infinite Jest tend to be quite short, like usually around like 10 to 15 words or so, would you say? Yep, that's about right. That's about where it lands. Do you have a couple examples that you could read for us right now so people can get a sense of what uh, what your poetry looks like? Oh, gosh. Um, I could. <laughs> I'd, have to pull, awesome. I'd have to pull it up here. To put you on the spot and everything, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So... Um, I can read two of these pieces for you. Um, again, because they are so short, I think they, they lend themselves more to kind of a, a visual looking at and reading than, than right. an audio reading. But, you know, for, for our audience purposes, I will do that. Um, so <laughs> I'll, I'll read the first one. Um, and, and this is from, you know, the, the beginning page of the book titled Year of Glad. Uh, and I've turned mm. that into a piece that's called EGAD. And it goes, hope is at the periphery of my focus, more or less, where you reside. Cool. So that's Hal sitting in the Arizona, University of Arizona Department in front of the deans? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So cool. so one of the challenges um, that I face is, you know, I'm so kind of married to this text and the plot and what happens. And, you know, really part of the challenge is to create poems that are not just poems about infinite jest. Right. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, thematically, are you trying to recreate uh, a sense of what's happening on that page, like almost as sort of a synopsis or like a poetic capturing of the feeling or the mood or the tone of what's happening? Or are they just meant to be totally independent of that? I try to make them as independent as possible. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think part of the criticism um, of this kind of poetry, you know, when, when people do have it is that. You know, you're just kind of taking prose and making a poetic version of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I really try to not iterate, you know, the plot again in the poem. Um, but, it, but it's yeah. hard. It's hard because, you know, I, I think right. you're kind of captured by like the mood and the spirit and the words, you know, that Wallace has chose to use. So it's a little right. inevitable at, at points that that creeps in. Right. So for first-time readers in Infinite Jest, they, they can approach your work uh, without fear of spoilers, would you say? Yeah, correct. No spoilers. Mm. All right, that's good. <laughs> um, how did you get into this uh, erasure poetry genre specifically? What's your background there with that? Uh, so I've always been a writer, uh, more more of a kind of traditional writer. Um, you know, I started writing mm. poetry probably in about, you know, 2007, 2008, I would say. And... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I faced the challenge that I think every poet or every writer faces, where you're you're sitting down, you've got this blank screen or this blank piece of paper, and you know you're supposed to magically summon these words right out of nowhere and mm-hmm. you know put them on the paper, and they're supposed to be just wonderful and great. Um, and one of the exercises that I turned to when I was facing this long period of writer's block was this practice of, of found poetry or erasure poetry, where, you know, you start with words that somebody else has written, um, and that could be in a book, um, that could be a label on a soup can, right? Anything, basically, it could be your source text. Um, right. You know, kind of starting with somebody else's words and, and thinking about how to re-envision them and rework them um, can be you know, an effective strategy for dealing with that writer's block. So, you know, originally it was just kind of an exercise to, to break myself out of my writing routine. Um, but the more that I did that, the more I really found that I liked it. And, you know, as I was sharing them with other people, you know, they responded very positively to that. So it, it kind of became a more uh, regular part of my writing practice. Cool. Uh, and it turns out there's quite a there's a scene for this kind of poetry as well. 
there's a lot of other people engaged with there it. are yeah you know it, it it has its roots way way far back um you know with the dadaists and, and tristan zara and uh, you know a lot of those early writers who were kind of experimenting and playing around with work um and we're really seeing a resurgence um in mm-hmm. a the people the number of people who are writing um this type of work mm-hmm. But B, and more importantly, uh, I've seen publishers become more uh, accepting or to- or tolerant, mm-hmm. right, of this type of work. Yeah, Tree of Codes by Jonathan Safran Foer comes to mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the kind of redacted, deleted text out of uh, Street of Crocodiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ginny, let's talk about how you discovered David Foster Wallace. Do you do you remember that story? Uh, how you first came to was it Infinite Jest? What was the first thing of his you read? Do you remember? Yeah, so I was um, in grad school. This was probably about uh, two thousand and seven. Um, I was getting my master's in professional writing um, at the University of Massachusetts in Dartmouth, and I was taking this stylistics course. Um, and as part of that course, uh, our professor had assigned um, the essay from Harper's uh, Tense Present, right? Mm-hmm. So all about kind of language and, and its usage and the American usage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just remember this moment. I, I was sitting in the school library. I was in this big comfy chair. You know, the sun was coming in and I, I pulled out this article to start reading it. And, you know, just immediately reading through it, the footnotes, you know, I, I'd never encountered anything like that before. And I just, you know, I thought it was hard, but also hilarious. And, you know, I just felt like it was really special. Like I, I, I knew that Wallace was really special. Um, and I had made kind of a mental note that, I needed to read more. Cool. Yeah, I think the voice of that piece is really funny, and it's really him. And I, I read a funny thing about that piece that he told his editor there, Colin Harrison, who Colin is the one who had sent him to the state fair and then to the cruise ship. And after that, he told Colin, don't send me anywhere else. <laughs> he said, I will do another piece for you, but I'm not going to travel. So he was able to sort of do this dictionary piece, you know, so he wrote the piece like just at home, no travel. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like the perfect scenario for him. Yeah, (laughs) the agoraphobic scholar. So Jenny, from that essay, American Usage, where did you go in your Wallace journey after that? Was it Infinite Jest the next thing? or? Yeah, so, you know, it was around, obviously, you know, eight, 2008 um, when we got the word that, that Wallace died. And mm-hmm. it was kind of a strange feeling because, you know, at that time I hadn't read a lot of Wallace's work. Uh, but I was I was right. carrying around that feeling that he was this really special writer. And, mm-hmm. you know, even though I hadn't read a lot of his works at that time, um, I kind of had this sense that, that you know, there was this great loss. That there was this... Yeah. And, so kind of, you know, I, I kind of tucked that in, in the back of my head um, and fast forward then to, to summer of 2009. Uh, and I think like a lot of folks, um, I read Infinite Jest kind of during the Infinite Summer Initiative. Right. Um, cool. And, you know, I think like a lot of people who really respond more viscerally to Wallace, uh, you know, I've always kind of been a little bit of a, a lonely soul, I would say. Um, and, and particularly like at this time, uh, I had just moved down to the DC area. Um, so I was, I was in a new city, I had a new job and I knew nobody. Um, and I had just left academia. And so all of a sudden I had all of this free time and I had no idea what people did with their free time. 
novel exactly so you know i i I would come home at the end of the day and think what am i what am i going to do with myself so uh you know the infinite summer was really well timed uh you know for me it was one of those kind of magical instances of of reading the right book at the right time uh so not not only was it you know topical to kind of you know the loneliness that i was going through at that period but you know (laughs) it actually gave me something to do and a a sense of community to to feel like i was connected with Hmm. Yeah, I think thematically, projects like Infinite Summer and, and now Infinite Winter marry the themes of Infinite Jest, like community and loneliness, really well with the kind of experience that you get with, with reading this book with hundreds of other people and getting to talk mm-hmm. about it. Like you're all solitarily reading it. So there's that feeling of atomization. But then also there's this collective consciousness that comes with it that you get to come together and and discuss it. And I think that's so much about what Infinite Jest is is on about yeah and you know just having kicked off infinite winter and reading some of the the intro posts uh, that mark has been posting you know over the last couple Mm -hmm. weeks uh, i've been kind of smiling to myself as i've gone along because you know i had it in my head i was going to write this great intro essay about loneliness and how you know i was so alone (laughs) and you know wallace it was the right book at the right time and then like every single person who wrote a blog post was writing about the exact same thing (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's funny there's been a lot of confluence between what people have been saying in, in the, the starting out stuff so far hey? yeah yeah um matt booker just posted about a week ago on tips or guidelines for reading infinite jest matt do you want to give us a, a summary of what you had to say there well i feel like i have written the same kind of post about three or four five six times So my advice is pretty limited. I feel like maybe I, and I told Mark this too, like maybe I'm not the best person to ask about how to read Infinite Jest for the first time because I, it's been almost 20 years ago for me and I've been rereading the book almost constantly ever since. And Hmm. so for me, it's sort of a different approach and I, I, now in my old age i tend to dip in and dip out of the book more than anything rather than reading it straight through in a reread yeah totally. so i i i'm really surprised not surprised but like i'm really still just amazed at the amount of interest and like love people have for this community and like infinite summer and like the group read thing because it doesn't work well with a lot of other books you know yeah but yeah. What about you, Dave? What what advice do you have for for first time readers? <laughs> for first time readers, I think Matt covered it pretty well in his post. So if you haven't seen that yet, check it out. Um, I like the idea that that Infinite Jest feels like a tennis match physically, and that you're flipping back and forth between the the main body of the text and then the end notes. And so uh, the idea of two bookmarks is like the first essential piece of information that I give to people. When they say they're going to read it, I just say, okay, get two bookmarks. Seriously, like it's going to help you a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a practical thing. Uh, another thing that I would say, and I think my I'm going to be writing a post about this for the Infinite Winter site in the next week here, is that generally, like I know a lot of people, a lot of friends, uh, family members who I've I've been so excited about this book and telling them about it that they've picked it up, they've started reading it. Um, but not that many of them have got past like page two or 300 and they kind of abandoned ship. And so my post is going to be about how the first two or 300 pages are pretty hard 
because like the chronology is weird. You don't really get a lot of context always. It's kind of a book that that really rewards rereading. And so if you can make it to sort of the quarterway mark, something happens there. You turn a corner that kind of is very illuminating and will kind of set the light bulb on for you. So I just try and encourage people to get to that point. And then after that, I think it's all mostly downhill. So those are my those are my starting suggestions, I think, is is hang in, you know, at least until that point, And then you'll probably be good after that. Yeah, I, I like to have a motto that says, like, you get what you get and you don't get upset, which is mm-hmm. kind of a, a subversion of, of that phrase. But, you know, I think so often readers read for plot and if they feel like they're not getting something, you know, that's very distressing and very chaotic. And, you know, mm-hmm. particularly with Infinite Justice, you know, because of its, its scope and, and magnitude. I mean, I, I agree. I think you just have to plow through, pick up what you can pick mm-hmm. up. Um, and something that I encourage people to do is you know, something similar to, to Corey's approach, uh, where she's like yeah. looking for color, like pick out something that you are going to pay attention to, right? Mm-hmm. Like whether it's, it's color, um, you know, descriptions of faces, you know, the sky, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and make that one of your focal points as well. Uh, because yeah. I think kind of finding that and discovering that through the book, uh, is a nice supplemental process to this kind of traditional plot-based <laughs> type of reading Absolutely. that we're used to doing. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. On my uh, on the second time reading it, um, I'm writing my thesis on on religion and theology in relation to Infinite Jest, and so I was like doing that very thing, looking for any kind of religious references or spirituality references, and it really helped me to focus and engage with the text in a way that. I hadn't necessarily done the first time I read it. So, yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. Thanks, Corey, <laughs> for that. You, you mean Jenny. <laughs> well, Corey and now also Jenny. Yeah. Well, both of you, thank you um, for – I think it's great advice because I am doing something similar this time around. You know, for me, I had to find a different tack to keep me interested in the book. And uh, this time around, I'm reading it with this guy, Rob Short, and Rob and I are really just looking at the AA stuff. And, you know, there's a lot in there about um, a higher power. And Mm -hmm. that kind of goes back to what you're saying about the religion angle, because Mm -hmm. AA meets you right at the front and says, hey, we don't believe in God either. We know we're we're agnostic. You're agnostic. I'm agnostic. You still need to believe in this higher power for AA to work. Um, right. And it's I think that was probably disarming to Wallace, you know, to write up front to have someone meet him where he was. And he was hmm. this smart guy who was not, you know, didn't grow up in a environment full of people going to church and going to AA meetings hmm. and really understand what that was. So I think it would be it would have been easy for him to just uh, look down on it. So anyway, that's my angle this time. And I remember maybe one one of the first times I read the book, I got really interested in masks Hmm. and any any Hmm. mentions of masks. And I think what got me interested in that was the first mention of Gately and how digging up the head in (laughs) in a mask. Right. That's a spoiler alert, by the way. um, (laughs) uh, It's only on like page 12, so it's not that bad. But yeah, it's um, it's John Wayne wearing a mask. Yeah, so I mean, the other thing with spoilers is the movie has been out for 20 years. I mean, the book has been out for 20 years. Like, <laughs> oh, 
I was like, what? There's a movie? But Michael Sheridan. But like if a movie came out 20 years ago, like, do can I spoil The Godfather for you and like tell you how that you ends? You could. Could I? Good. I've actually never seen The Godfather. Oh, it came so out 40 I, years I, ago. I mean, yeah, me, me neither, it's Dave. Like, it's okay. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah. Well, I won't tell you how it ends. Yeah, dude, I'd be I'd be pissed <laughs> if I remember the Godfather. But I mean, it's like I don't think you can really spoil Infinite Jest. Like, there's nothing I can tell you that be like, oh, you blew, gave away the ending. Like, no, you could. F- yeah, I know. Yeah, I see what you're saying. To to. But I mean, it's been that. 20 years. Like, for God's sake, can we just please assume like large sections of the population have read it by now? You know. yeah i feel like it's more like it's less about like plot spoilers and it's more the connections right i mean people want to feel smart and like figure it out themselves and kind of connect what happened you know on page 30 with what happens on page 600 and you know Mm -hmm. i think with you know the quote-unquote spoilers you like take that joy away from them a little bit right yeah I, i like i like in reading this book to to assembling a puzzle and so you're getting all these like random pieces handed to you by someone who's kind of like maybe a madman, but like a really smart madman. And they're just giving you these ran- seemingly random pieces, you know, and you're trying to figure out a way that they connect and they just don't for so long. But then eventually they kind of start to. And I think that's where where a huge amount of the joy and the pleasure of reading this book comes from is is making those connection points. I agree. I don't think Michael Peach liked that part. You know, you know, if if you read the the correspondence between the two, they really fought about that. Um, oh yeah, makes editing a really tough job because well, he wants to know what happens, right? And Wallace doesn't ever yeah. give him a satisfying answer. But I, I I don't envy you guys, and I guess that's why I didn't sign up for like a traditional reread of Infinite Jest. Is like I even that doesn't interest me as much anymore. Like the plot stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't think that, you know, it's necessarily solvable or even as interesting to say like, oh yeah, that theory, that's it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess for me, like, that's why I've got to come up with some other angle to keep me in the book after, like I say, like 20 years of reading this book. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Jenny, your project, you said it'd take you another 10 years. Uh, you, you, you might have to even after another 20 years like you might have to find another project where you're like ah, oh, i gotta come up with another 10-year project now to keep me interested in it well you know that's funny because i'm already i'm already thinking about what i'm going to do as i reread it this time um and, and, I, and I think right. what i've landed on is um tracking like weather references so you know mm-hmm. things about the weather and, and the sun and clouds and whether it's hot or cold um and you know, my boyfriend happens to be a programmer, you know, and really kind of good with the technical side. So we, we've already kind of plotted, you know, how we might do a data visualization of temperatures as, as you progress through oh, the book. Oh, that's cool. Um, and if what, you know, sections are more hot or more cold and kind of how that reflects, you know, what's going on. So. Oh, yeah. I love the parts about Orin in Arizona and just the way he describes the sun is a hammer. Exactly. It's one of the phrases that I just love that. So, Jenny, you said you're rereading it in addition to in addition to the erasing infinite. Are you are how do you treat that read that's like one page at a time versus what you're doing now for infinite winter? I would say those are very, very different experiences. Um, you know, it's very bizarre reading a book like one page at a time, uh, particularly, you know, when you when you might only read like one or two pages a week. Uh, yeah. um, and, and a lot of times, honestly, I'm trying not to read the page. 
mm-hmm. because right, again, yeah. I'm trying to like not have what's actually going on in the book in my head. So I'm trying to kind of do the thing where you like squint a little bit. So you're not reading it word for word and just trying to like pick up, you know, the most interesting phrases and, uh, you know, it doesn't always work, but, um, but yeah, so, so it's very <laughs> different. So even though I've, you know, been reading, uh, I guess you can say the first quarter of the book over the last couple of years, um, you know, really kind of sitting down to reread it with, you know, the intentionality and the way you properly read a book uh, with Infinite Winter uh, is it, just, it's a different experience. Uh, one that I'm actually really looking forward to. More of a fun read in a way. Exactly. And, you know, now that I've kind of made it through the first slog of, you know, what the hell is going on here? Um, you know, I can actually yeah. do more of that connective work and, and, you know, kind of see some of the underpinnings that aren't as obvious, you know, when you're a first time reader. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I wanted to ask you too, Ginny, about the musical project that has come out of the Erasing Infinite. Can you talk a little bit about that music project? Sure. So, you know, I had been posting, um, you know, these pieces online uh, for some time and probably about, you know, I would say half a year ago, this guy, this composer, his name is Patrick Green. He came across the, po- the project for the first time. And, you know, it was one of those things where he left me a message with, you know, lots of exclamation points saying, you know, how did I not know about this until now? This is really great. Uh, and fate's kind of aligned. And he um, he has collaborated with other writers before. Um, he has done uh, some compositions with uh, the poet uh, W.S. DiPiero. And so he had had a, a, a commission to create some sort of, project, some sort of song cycle uh, that was going to debut in Chicago this year. And timing just aligned right at the time that he was kind of looking for an idea and looking for inspiration. Uh, He came upon this project um, and really resonated uh, kind of, you know, with with these pieces. So he's he's calling this, um, I, I I sent him an email today and I said, tell me, tell me what you think so that I can talk about this correctly. Uh, and, and, and he <laughs> says he's, he thinks of it as kind of a, a postmodern imagining of a postmodern book. Mm. So um, how, how it's working is he is taking uh, pieces from the poems um, and weaving them into lyrics. So the, the song cycle will be uh, for a soprano who ironically, her name is Joelle, <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can, Exactly. You couldn't ask for uh, any more alignment there. Uh, so it's, it's with, yeah. with uh, Joelle is going to be our soprano singer accompanied by piano for the, the first debut. Um, and the guy's name is Mario. The <laughs> yeah, we, exactly. <laughs> we need to kind of align these worlds a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so so anybody who speaks German is, is going to kill me as I totally mispronounced this word here. Um <sighs> But he says it, it follows this old format called Frauenliebe in Lieben, which is uh, in English, it means like a woman's love and life. So it kind of follows the theme of like a woman falling in love, um, losing the one that she loves and then kind of reflecting back on her life. So um, I have not heard this yet. So I have no idea, uh, you know, what it's actually going to sound like. But, uh, you know, really excited uh, about that and cool. you just kind of this idea that like art begetting art and you know yeah. uh, kind of wallace mm-hmm. is like living on through these different strains uh, it's great mm-hmm. yeah and in lots of different artistic formats too so like we talked about brad cheeseman and his infinite jazz music jazz album uh and now this and then so many other forms of art that are kind of 
propagating outwards from literature. It's really cool to see that kind of diversity. Yeah, I feel like we need a, a David Foster Wallace like jam concert or something, you know, where everybody who's <laughs> created musical works inspired by Infinite Jest or the other books can kind of do a big performance. Yeah, we can get the Mountain Goats and Marnie Marnie Stern to come. Yeah, the Decemberists, right? <laughs> the Decemberists could join, of course. Yeah. There's another group called Blamos that did a song called "Living with David Foster Wallace." I like that song a lot. Huh. Oh yeah, Blamos. Uh, Blamos. Uh, there, I also saw an avant-garde music theater piece based on a David Foster Wallace work in New York in 2004, and it was based on the story from Brief Interviews with Hideous Men called Tristan, I Sold Sissy Nar to Echo. <laughs> okay. You're going to have to refresh me on that one. Uh, it's been a, it's a really bizarre story. A lot of people don't like it, uh, but it's mm. set in Hollywood and it's kind of about a TV producer, but it's also like this metaphor for um, Orpheus and I think it's Orpheus and Narcissus. And... Yeah. So there's like this weird mythology element in it. They turned it into an opera, but it was like a modern avant-garde opera. It was at the Kaufman Theater in New York in 2004. So you'd have to invite those people as well to your jam. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's very exciting, Ginny. I, I wonder if um, you see any other collaborations that you would like to have happen with this project with, have you talked to any other poets about like contributing pages to it or is it you, you really feel like it's your baby like it's your you have ownership of it? Yeah, I mean I think that's tough. Um you know I, I certainly feel like this particular project is my baby. Um but I mean I'm I'm completely open to any collaborations that may come my way and I, I did hear Corey's shout out in her podcast about wanting to do a show and Corey I would love to do a show with you so <laughs> you can make that happen yes awesome yeah well the the great concavity will curate some kind of like artistic festival maybe with uh, music and all of this stuff <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that'd be fun what is your what is your exact level of involvement with Patrick Green's project um so he's using your he's weaving your poetry into his lyrics do you get to, are you kind of consulting on that or what level of involvement will you have with that process? So I, he's pretty much running that show. Um, I, right now he is in the composing process. Uh, so I don't know that there's a lot to share out. Um, you know, I imagine I'll, I'll get to listen to it and, you know, provide probably limited feedback uh, at that point. You know, he has uh, extended some offers and said, you know, if there's if there's a poem that you really love and that you want to make sure it gets in the song, just, you know, let me know. Uh, but you know, I also respect his creative process and his vision. So I'm, I'm sure whatever he creates will will be great. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the other thing, if, for, for those who are attending the David Foster Wallace conference this year, uh, we've actually been collaborating with those conference coordinators. Um, and so we mm-hmm. should be doing a performance uh, and a discussion panel. I believe it's Thursday night of the conference. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, cool. if, you're, if you're listening and planning on coming to that conference, would you know, would love to, to see you there. Absolutely. You were you were there the first annual conference, Jenny, is that right? But not last year? Right. Yep. So, so I went the yeah, first okay. annual conference um, and presented uh, as part of a panel uh, just on the Erasing Infinite project. Um, mm-hmm. There, I got to meet Ryan Blank, who's also one of our, our Infinite Winter guides, uh, and yes. you know, really nice to kind of put all the faces to the names and, and meet these people in person. 
we we met briefly too and jenny i met you there jenny briefly right yeah. yeah you're right you're right i do remember that i actually emailed ryan i don't know how many years ago maybe like three or so because i saw his book supposedly fun things somewhere online and then kind of like looked into him a bit and then sent him an email and it turns out we had a bunch of stuff in common and so we went back and forth and emailed just for quite a while actually before i started seeing him pop up on uh other places like this related to this community so that's kind of a cool connection point. And and Jenny, we have mentioned you now on on a previous podcast where we talked about the issue of the Found Poetry Review that was about David Foster Wallace, and I contributed a little poem in there. I had a ton of fun doing that. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about what how that issue came together and what some of the other pieces were in there? Sure. Um, and yeah, so. As you mentioned, I think at the beginning of the podcast, uh, I'm the founder and editor in chief of the Found Poetry Review, uh, which got started back in, in 2011. And you know, one of the wonderful things about being an editor in chief is that you can curate, int- you know, special issues that align to your personal interests. <laughs> so you know, as I was kind of looking at the year ahead, uh, back I think it was, would have been 2013, we realized you know that the the fifth anniversary of Wallace's passing was coming up um, and thought that that would be a great opportunity to do a, a tribute issue for him. And, you know, the submissions that we got were actually, you know, really amazing. Um, so I'm going to contrast this a little bit to, to an issue that we have right now. So right now we're, we're collecting submissions for um, an issue about David Bowie. Oh, yeah. And cool. what we're finding as we read these submissions is that it, it's still too new. Right. Like, you know, mm, people right. haven't really had a chance to kind of reflect and absorb. And, you know, the, the, the pieces they're submitting really show that. Whereas mm. when we did the David Foster Wallace issue, you know, it had been five years. People had kind of lived with this and thought about this. Yeah. The stages of grief. Had occurred, <laughs> exactly. <you know>? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we got a lot of really great submissions, uh, including from Matt. And that was funny. Oh boy. <laughs> I had I had a lot of fun just like I thought it was a great idea because Wallace has so much text, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and one of the one of the cool things about that issue as well was um we worked with um, Francesco Lovato, who's the director of the Chicago School of Poetics. Uh, and and he actually teaches at Illinois State University. Oh, yeah, so cool. he was able to kind of curate a special selection of poems written by current students. Um, at that school Mm. so that that was also you know really meaningful and kind of a unique take oh that's awesome did he work there when wallace did at the same time or did he come after he seems pretty young so i think he must have come after but Mm. i I can't say for sure yeah what year did he did wallace teach there at isu till matt do you remember well he like he his last year there was in 2001 to 2002 he moved to california in 2002 right Cool. And I think he actually got that job in 2000 and gave like two years notice because he had he had still got some leave time signed up. So with academic jobs, you know, you have to often finish out your year. But mm-hmm. yeah. he, he gave advance of like a whole nother year, which is kind of unique. Just just so fiercely loyal kind of in a way. So fiercely loyal. And I think he also wanted to tie up a lot of loose ends and like yeah. take his time with moving and the dogs and everything. He, he was right. really reluctant to upset their lives. I think hmm. anyways, Jenny, the, the infinite winter project that's now 
how do you see yourself, um, you know, going through the book this time around? You mentioned some other things you're looking for. What are you most looking forward to reading this time around, parts-wise in Infinite Jeff? <laughs> so I think, like, as I absorb, you know, pop culture and watch TV shows, I'm always kind of a fan of the slightly evil characters who may or may not be redeemed at the end, you know? So, like, in <laughs> Harry Potter, I'm a big Snape fan, you know, Lost. Like, I'm a big Ben Linus fan in Lost. And, you know, I, I think here, you know, I really... I like the characters of like Pemulus and, you know, even Oren to a certain extent yeah. uh, who, who do yeah. some, you know, pretty despicable things. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of that. But, you know, I like I like particularly with with the Pemulus passages that, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's portrayed in a lot of ways as, as you know, kind of being the quote unquote antichrist, if you if you want to use <laughs> that word for it. <laughs> I think that was Wallace's word, not my word. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you have these really kind of tender passages, even at the beginning, right, where where they're talking, they're at the tennis tournament and they're talking about how everybody has all this like sponsored gear, you know, and, and tennis rackets mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, from these companies and all the sticks. Right. Yeah. And, you know, how, how Michael Pimelis is the only one, right, who, who doesn't have that. But, you know, they get him to spray paint the logo on. Right. And just, you know, it's it's funny, but it's also kind of like touching and, and tender. Right. This this character yeah. who's made to be so bad in a lot of ways is really has a sensitive underbelly, I guess. Yeah. He's just so human. Yeah. As well. so, I've, yeah, I've come to realize lately that I can't, I'm physically incapable of not smiling when someone says penulous. I just <laughs> I just have to smile every time because I think his character is so funny and interesting. His entrepot yachting cap. I love that. Part. Yeah, the peemster. <laughs> yeah, and his character just lends itself so well to art, right? I mean, you know, people have done these drawings of him, which are just, you know, hilarious. Yeah. I remember seeing like a fashion magazine some years ago, too, that like had some characters from Infigest recreated in like a with real human models. And one of them was like Pemulus and he had the cap and everything like that. <laughs> yeah, there's a guy who has an Infinite Jest tattoo that has like realistic drawings of how and pimulus yeah yeah so dave what about you matt has said kind of what he's looking for what are you going to be paying attention to uh okay this time rereading i guess re-rereading infinite jest i i immediately the first time i read it i was so drawn to especially the passages about um about advertising and most notably the one about the tongue scrapers the no coat ink tongue scraper ad with the you know the guy who's offered the lick of the coquettish meter maids ice cream and then you know the geologic layer of film on his tongue and everyone recoiling in abject horror and all that i thought that was probably the funniest part of infinite chest and uh and sometimes i just pick it up and i reread that section just to laugh so i think i'm interested in seeing this time the comedic way that he deals with with advertising but then also he contrasts that so well with like there's that specific line where he says the point of these ads was to create anxieties relievable by purchase. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's obviously a major theme of Infinite Jest. So uh, consumerism is something that I'll be paying attention to. Also, as a Canadian, I love the whole Canadian arc in this book. And it's so weird to me that an American author is so interested and so up on Canadian politics and history uh, and concerns and so that's something that I'm always just have a great deal of fun engaging with when I read this book yeah I, I don't know what to make of that what, what is your take on that Ginny or do you 
what, what do you what do you guys think about that that part of it because you know it's you got the tennis part of the book you've got the aa part yeah. of the book and then you've got this like quebecois terrorist like i love man i love it i think it's so funny like the whole uh history of the of the prussia and Dutrane footnote mm-hmm. just just wrecks me like i find it so funny because in canada like we kind of view quebec or westerners or anglophones view quebec as kind of it's kind of its own cultural thing for sure historically and even to present they've maintained a really distinct and vibrant sense of history and culture and language and all that kind of stuff and so to see wallace an american writing about sort of his take on the uniqueness of of quebec is so funny and then also the parts about alberta are the are just the best because there's also a sort of a sense in canada among many non-albertans that alberta is like the most sort of capitalist of the provinces because of you know the oil sands are there and so there's all this like insane economic stuff happening in northern alberta and it tends to lead to some funny cultural things like a lot of albertans come to my city Kelowna, in the summers with these just like monstrous trucks and ridiculous kind of cultural affectations that come along with that it's like beach partying and you know like insane music festivals there's this music festival that happens every year here called center of gravity that's just like mostly albertans just partying in the streets and it's just absolute like havoc and like dionysian revelry basically um so the stuff about the about albertans in infinite jest is so funny to me um wait what so. where does he mention alberta uh there's he mentions the ultra conservative wacko albertans who are another sect of terrorists within canada they have different methodologies and concerns than the Quebecois terrorists, but they, they're they also kind of, they're so obsessed with Canadian sovereignty as well that they do some terroristic kind of moves. Uh, nothing quite as on the scale. They're not quite obviously at the forefront as the Quebecois ones, but there's there's a few references in there to them. So maybe watch out for those this time. They're quite funny. You better blog about this, Dave. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll yeah, I'll, maybe I'll make my posts all Canadian centric and uh, eliminate <laughs> some Canadian cultural things for the Americans. In the diagnostics for this podcast, it says that seventy six percent of listeners are American, so maybe I can help to, you know, inform. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would count myself among those who need to be informed. You know, I think like as I think <laughs> back upon that first reading, you know, that was one of the sections that was like really tough. It was really yeah. tough. Oh, I can imagine. Totally. There was a, at the Paris conference last year, uh, there was a guy who, a scholar from Alberta who gave a talk on the Canadian centric arc of infinite jest. And I'm not sure how much interest there was from non-Canadians. Like people were engaged, but there's something special about it being a Canadian uh, and reading those parts of the book that I just don't know if, if Americans or people from other countries can quite appreciate to the same extent so i can imagine those being confusing <laughs> and a bit bewildering maybe <laughs> like he, he wallace makes references to the flq which was actually like a real terrorist sect in the, the 1960s and 70s and so like he's definitely done his homework uh on canadian history and politics so it's quite interesting to see that there was that reference in in every love story is a ghost story that Wallace at one time was considering just moving to Canada and being a high school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what my life is. I teach high school in Canada. So that, so that was really funny to me as well. That's funny. Hey, yeah. Ginny, I have uh, one 
one other question for you about reading Infinite Jest as part of your uh, Erasing Infinite project. You were talking about how when you scan a page and you look at it and you kind of squint to try to really not read it, but to look at just the language. What what are some memories you have or experiences you've had of something that you remember just really jumping out at you and saying, this is going to be the poem on this page? You know, is, is it just like big words or long words or is it something really moving phrase? What is it that jumps out at you first? I would say it's a combination of, of all of those things, right? Every page is different. Um, it, two instances I can think of particularly have more to do with just patterns in the language uh, than they do, you know, particular words. Um, you know, we have that great section of the book where everything starts with this is how, right? This is how you do that. Mm. This is how. Mm. And so, so oh, yeah. I've, I've transferred that into, you know, a series of poems that start kind of with that same lead in phrase. Uh, the other one I did most recently, which, you know, I thought was pretty funny was, you know, we get to the chapter where they're talking about John Wayne a lot. So, you know, I've turned those into a little mini series of poems about John Wayne, the cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I love John Wayne. I think he's one of my one of my favorite characters. He 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 lacks like a certain kind of depth that most other characters in the book have. But there's something so like the way that he's so flat in his personality, is, I find so <laughs> funny. He's just so like robotic, you know. Well, I think it was a brilliant thing for him to name that character John Wayne because there's yeah. a, there's actually like thousands of people in the United States named John Wayne, and right, and yeah. that way he apparently did know a guy named John Wayne, uh, or they he came across a guy named John Wayne when he was a tennis player, hmm. and oh, yeah. there's no way that guy can go back and sue him like Kate Gossett <laughs> can. You know, it'd be like naming a right, character like yeah. John Smith. Be like you didn't name. I named it after a different John Wayne. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. picking someone famous was a yeah. But Matt, I mean, to your to your point as yeah. well. I it, one of the challenges is that you know Wallace has these these elegant turns of phrases, these you know word Frankenstein's where he's you know creating his own new words, right? <laughs> and I think it's really easy to gravitate towards those and want to use those. But that's that's an instance where, as I'm writing, I need to kind of push back because if, if too much of that creeps into the poems, it becomes easy for people to say, "Wow, well, well, you're just you're just ripping off Wallace, right? Those are his words. You're not doing anything different." So, uh, you, that's interesting. you know, another question I had for you along the that same line is, whenever I look at the contributors, like to that David Foster Wallace issue of the Found Poetry Review, or when I see people who are commenting on your poems on the Erasing Infinite, I I realize I don't know like any of these poets. And I know a lot of the people in the Dave Foster Wallace community, you see a lot of the same names. And mm-hmm. I think your project has really brought in like a new crowd of people to Wallace's work who would, you know, maybe not approach it the way that most people would. Um, so I, what I was going to ask you is, is some what are some other poets who work like this who are working now or some other projects that you know are similar to this that you find inspiring like give us some um, recommendations yeah there's there's a whole list of them um you know one of the the big poets who's actually canadian dave uh mm-hmm. who's operating right. right now um is is his name is christian book um oh yeah yeah he's great uh, he's amazing i've used some of his stuff in my english classes before 
He's been to Kelowna before. I'm going to have to interrupt and say I don't like him because he blocked me on Twitter. Oh, no. (laughs) Why? You can, I didn't know you could even do that. You can block people. Yeah. Okay. And what did you, what did you do? I I guess I am just at war with certain Canadian poets. Oh, no. Are you threatening Canadian sovereignty? Is that why? I just, you guys can talk about him, but I'm, I'm out. Okay. Well, so I mean, if, if you're if you're into this kind of poetry, uh, you know, I think he, he is definitely one to look at. He does more um, constraint based work. Sounds right. Yeah. So his his book oh. Unoya, Unoya, right? Amazing. You know, each chapter, so you know, the first chapter contains only words containing a. The second chapter is only words containing e. Um, yeah. And I mean, just the yeah, the yeah. fortitude and, and you know patience that it takes to do a project like that is is impressive. Yeah, wasn't it like a ten year project for him to make that book? Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really impressive. Yeah, and then, you know, you have some other people who are, you know, kind of erasing pop culture documents. Um, so, you know, Travis McDonald erased the 9-11, you know, commission report and, oh, and wow. turned that into something called the omission repo. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's cool. a whole slew of them. Um, I'm trying to think one more. Maybe Ronald Johnson has something uh, called radios where he erased uh, Paradise Lost. So, I mean, yeah, there's a a whole canon of people who are doing this kind of work. Oh, you know, I was thinking of Austin Cleon and the newspaper poems and stuff like that. Have you seen that blackout news newspaper blackout or whatever? Do you know that project, Austin Cleon? Yeah, I do. So it's been very much in the same spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to following your whole project because, you know, it, like you say, it doesn't take very long to for a person to read these. It probably takes you 10 times as long to create them, but they're... Oh, yeah. Probably like hundreds of times. <laughs> yeah. More. Well, and, and what it's done is made it a lot more. It's made the book sort of accessible. Like, it's not intimidating to look at one of these and to, to read it. Yeah. So... It's interesting the way you sort of transformed it into a minimalistic thing. No one would ever call yeah. it like infinite jest a minimalistic piece, mm. right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I actually had that exact word in my sort of notes right here that that your project, Jenny, is turning Wallace's maximalism into a, like a minimalization process. I think that's really interesting. Good synergy, Matt. Good synergy. <laughs> well, I think we're sort of getting to that time. So... Jenny, do you have any sort of final thoughts on anything we've talked about here today? Yeah. I, I th- anything to add? Final poems? <laughs> no, no final poems. You can go online and read those, I think. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what really strikes me from, from this conversation, um, you know, from listening to your guys' past podcasts and even even just watching some of the commentary uh, that, that people are writing online is, um you know, there's really at least two camps that come to Wallace, right? You're, there's the academics who have kind of the, the cold uh, type of approach, and you have the people who are, you know, really connecting to it, you know, in their heart, I would say. Right. And I would just encourage people who are, are looking at the book, particularly for the first time, um, you know, to just go with what feels right to you. Um, you know, some people are going to really connect to it on that kind of academic scholarly level, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, some people are going to kind of find those personal touch points and references and really, you know, kind of get that personal mm-hmm. meaning out of it. And, and that's great, too. Yeah. So there's no right, yeah. right way to read it. Yeah. And I'd say, too, that those two things are not also mutually exclusive. So you can be an academic approaching this book and really appreciating, you know, sort of the, the critical stuff that he's doing with it. 
but at the same time also engaging with the affective nature of the book. And I think that's such a great marriage throughout this book is those two things, the head and the heart kind of find connecting points. Yeah, that's a good clarification. All the academics were, were probably scowling that I called them cold. So didn't mean that. <laughs> the, the dispassionate <laughs> objectivity of, uh, of a high, higher learning. <laughs> I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. You know, I came, I came to Arita Finagest when I was in my doing my education degree, um, and then years later, after teaching for a bunch of years, decided to go back to do a master's in English because I wanted to do something about Infinite Jest. Like, I'd fallen so in love with this book that I, I just knew I needed to do something big with it or bigger with it. And so there was kind of a that I kind of had the experience of both things: being a fan and then coming to it academically because of my you know, fandom. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. Awesome, Jenny. Well, we're very looking forward to your upcoming posts on the Infinite Winter blog project. You're going to be posting about once a week. Yep. Yep. I'll be posting once a week as well. We've uh, Go check out Matt's post from last week, uh, sort of his guide to reading Infinite Jest. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome talking to you and about your project. Thanks, Jenny. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks for having me, guys. You're welcome. Uh, so, Jenny, where can people go find your work online? Sure. To follow the uh, Erasing Infinite project, you can just go to www.erasinginfinite.com. Um, or if you kind of want to stalk me personally, I'm at Jenny, J-E-N-N-I-B-Baker.com. <laughs> cool. And you're at Twitter, too. You're on Twitter. Doing the tweets. Exactly. Yeah. So um, on Twitter, yeah. I'm just at Jenny B. Baker. Cool. And then so the Infinite Winter Project, Jenny, you're kind of also doing some PR stuff for that, I guess. Where can people go to find out more about the Infinite Winter Project? Sure. Yeah, to find out more about the Infinite Winter Project, uh, you can go to the main website, which is uh, www.infinitewinter.org. Uh, on Twitter, we are at Enit House, so at Enit House. And on Facebook, we are slash Year of Glad. Uh, from there, you can kind of connect into our other properties. We're on Reddit as well. Uh, so big online yeah. community. Just tentacles everywhere, you know, like every social media thing. It's Infinite Winters just you getting ubiquitous. I'll, I'll put in a plug for the group read or the co-read Rob and I are going to be blogging about is on my blog at simpleranger.net. Perfect. Oh, awesome. I didn't know about that. I love Rob Short. That is a cool dude. Him and I were on the same same panel at the conference. Well, go check it out on simpleranger.net. We have a couple posts up there already. Great. Uh, Matt, I've, for some reason, I don't know why, I've kind of fallen into doing like the end of show stuff that's really boring. And so, Matt, tell us about the things that people can do to get in touch with us. They can tweet at us. We're at Concavity Show. They can email us. We are Concavity Show at gmail.com. And you can visit our website, greatconcavity.podbean.com. Yeah. And Instagram, too. We're there. Oh, Instagram. We are also at Concavity Show. I think yeah. that's right. We, yeah, that's right. We also want to thank our logo, which is courtesy of the artist Robin O'Neill. We also yes. want to thank Parquet Courts for their song Instant Disassembly. What else, Dave? Totally. I actually got we got an email today, Matt, from somebody who wrote in with some questions. So we're doing a, an upcoming show this month. Uh, where we field questions from from the audience, from the people listening. And he specifically mentioned, thank you so much for introducing me to the band Parquet Courts. I didn't know about them before, and I've gotten really into them as a result of the podcast. So that's cool. Love hearing stuff like that. Very cool. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, to everyone listening, please continue sending us questions through email or Twitter. Uh, we've been stockpiling a list of them on a document. And so look forward to that episode in, in the coming yeah, weeks week or, or so. A so. couple weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's all the things. So thanks again, Jenny. Thanks, Matt. Thank Great you. talking to you guys. Until next time. Chill my eyes.